0: You're listening to On The Go with VAO News Podcast, covering the month of February 2017. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Each month, the Virtual Acquisition Office, or VAO, team consolidates and summarizes the key takeaways from the most important acquisition related policies, guidance, regulatory changes, and more. Thanks for tuning in today. Coming to you from the VAO, I'm Brittany Shapiro. This month, we have Dara Curran, Lauren Gardner, Sierra Ryan, and Doug Stuck to deliver our VAO team review of key acquisition developments. Take it away, Dara.
1: Joining me today are my teammates. I have Lauren Gardner, Sarah Ryan, and Doug Stuck. You may know some of these people personally because these are the people who come into your office and talk to you. I guess we should get right down into it. Lauren, it was a short month, but why don't you get us kicked off without any further ado?
2: Yeah, I sure will. Um, And as usual, we'll start at the literal top, uh, taking a look at updates coming out of the new administration as well as significant legislative developments. So, of course, one of the biggest news items so far this year was the administration's temporary stop, um, effective January 22nd, uh, to hiring for existing government positions, creating new positions, or supporting available capabilities with contractor labor. We saw a lot of resulting activity from that in February as agencies worked to get their their arms around implementing the freeze and figuring out where exemptions were needed and developing and sending out guidance to the workforce to address those areas. There are 18 exemptions outlined in this one memo alone from OMB and OPM uh, without having to make any further requests or explanation. And those include U.S. Postal Service hiring, uh, civilian personnel hires from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and Central Intelligence Agency, non-career senior executive service appointments, conversions, and also internal career ladder promotions. Now, outside of those exempted categories, if there is a critical need, agency heads can write to OPM and explain uh, the need as an exception. Um, They'll need to explain how the need relates to the agency mission and why other personnel can't simply be shifted around to fill it, as well as forecast what the likely consequences will be if the need goes unfilled for three to six months. You're going to remember probably that OPM and OMB were tasked in the original hiring freeze directive to develop a plan to shrink the size of the federal workforce by the end of April. So the presumption, hopefully here, is that this freeze is temporary and will be offset by specific cuts in areas that can actually absorb them without undue difficulty or or deprivation. Um, Well, that is the hope anyway. So presumably, after this three to six month window, any critical need uh, will have been addressed either by the overall OMB OPM plan or by the agency initiated exemption.
3: Thanks, Lauren. And the guidance did remind everyone of the administration's position of no fair wriggling around the freeze with contractor labor. So agencies can't contract out for services that are substantially similar to those a federal civilian employee would be providing if they were actually there in a currently frozen position. However, service contracts for other purposes are okay, so long as they're allowed by law regulations and any applicable managerial directive. Now these are just broad brushstrokes and obviously there are many details that still need to be handled at the individual agency level. So OPM augmented the already distributed guidance with answers to 43 frequently asked clarification questions. We've also seen more organization specific guidance released by the Department of Defense and the Navy. DoD has exempted 16 categories of civilian personnel, including first responders and law enforcement, cybersecurity personnel, certain shipyard and depot positions, personnel involved in space operations or planning, and nuclear operations positions, um, both in terms of nuclear weapons and nuclear reactors. So basically, all the vital stuff you do not want to skimp on. Deputy Defense Secretary Bob Work also outlined how DOD will handle the exemption petition process, which basically mirrors the one laid out by OPM. He noted that as far as contracts are concerned, you cannot take funds beyond the established baselines to award new or broaden existing contracts without obtaining approval from exemption officials. If you are doing that, you better have a high priority function you're asking for. Officials who grant exemptions uh, will have to submit biweekly reports on what they granted, but they will also be able to provide feedback on what they see occurring in terms of readiness and mission impact uh, resulting from the freeze. So that will act partly as an accountability mechanism and partly as a complaint avenue.
4: Thanks, Sierra. Obviously a lot of concerns remain, despite the exemptions already defined in the process for requesting new ones. Lawmakers and defense officials have cautioned the president that any compromise in the ranks of acquisition personnel can have a serious and long reaching effect on readiness and military capabilities. In fact, although President Trump has repeatedly expressed his intent to rebuild and expand the military, having the freeze in place will actually prevent any meaningful progress on that goal. As one example, Assistant Marine Corps Commandant General Glenn Walters noted his organization already has just half the contracting officers on staff it ultimately needs, and a freeze on hiring for all intensive purposes also freezes the military rebuilding plans. Although present policies seem to be driven by the idea that the federal workforce is somehow way too big and expensive and desperately needs to be trimmed down, an evaluation by the Congressional Budget Office cast doubt on the savings that could be achieved even with a fairly substantial personnel reduction. TBO found that 10% reduction implemented through attrition with only one rehire for every three workforce members that leave the government would save $5 billion over the next decade. I mean sure that sounds like a lot of money, but until you consider that's not even one half of 1% of the government's discretionary budget for fiscal year 2016. Now it's starting to sound like a lot of pain and a lot of risk for the functioning of the government programs for relatively marginal gain. And there are
1: far bigger savings opportunities out there to be chased. Uh, a February commentary from Donald Kettle, we've heard from him before and talked about him in the update. He's professor and former dean of the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, suggested that there's some really significant monetary gains that could be realized through actions such as doing more to stop the flow of improper payments. Those total more than $137 billion each year. and also following up on the many recommendations that the Government Accountability Office has already identified in terms of reducing redundancies and duplication in federal programs. For instance, in its 2016 report on those, GEO estimated that Congress and the administration had addressed 41 percent of its previous recommendations and those steps had yielded some 56 billion dollars of financial benefits over a five-year period. And then another 69 billion dollars were anticipated through 2025 so you compare that to the 5 billion dollars for all these workforce cuts these are much bigger numbers we will have to see what opm and omb come up with as a longer term plan to reduce the government size and the savings that they're expecting to result but it's going to be important to see are those costs truly going to be saved or are they simply going to end up being kicked further down the road displacing or defending expenditures and, and end up being more savings illusion than reality
2: Right. So, and with so much current scrutiny aimed uh, at the federal workforce, I don't know if we should be surprised or not that lawmakers are tossing yet another iron on that fire. Uh, On February 9th, um, it was the first of a planned series of hearings to assess how to modernize the civil service. Um, According to Senator James Langford, uh, who chairs the Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committees, Subcommittee on Regulatory Affairs and Federal Management, lawmakers are gearing up to take on reform of the general schedule. And it's a tricky and sensitive project, but a necessary effort, Langford said. Uh, Hearing uh, participants, including representatives from both the Federal Managers Association and Senior Executives Association, warned of serious risk that could result from the hiring freeze, but agreed that lawmakers should consider common sense reforms. Uh, which would make the federal workforce less of a target for executive actions. Now this included reforming areas such as hiring and firing, and really there was a, a lot of discussion about the current difficulty of doing both. Uh, Langford pointed out that the federal hiring process averaged 100 days in duration in 2016, and that the guidance OMB provides uh, regarding hiring runs into hundreds of pages. Um, and both of these are indicators that the hiring process may be a bit too involved, hard to understand, um, and a little bit cumbersome. Now that in turn actually tees up potential problems down the line, Langford contends. Good hiring reduces the likelihood you'll eventually need to fire people or provide intensive oversight to keep them on track, he explained. Uh, So if an employee does not turn out to be uh, or does turn out to be a poor performer, lawmakers um, have several bills in the works that will reduce the barriers and difficulty in addressing that um, either by making it easier to suspend the employees or or simply let the bad apples go if you will, entirely.
4: Another late January executive order that prompted additional February guidance is the President's instruction to identify two regulations that can be rescinded or to offset each new rule the government wants to put out. OMB's interim guidance on the 1-in, 2-out order is presented in question and answer form and addresses areas such as how costs will be measured, answered to that is, and in terms of overall opportunity costs. What regulations might qualify for waivers? That would be compelling requirements such as those pertaining to critical health, safety, or financial issues. And what agencies need to do to identify regulations for repeal? The reporting of targeted rules to be rescinded and their associated savings must be submitted by the time a new rule is proposed. The primary stated aim of this regulatory reform effort is to reduce red tape and bureaucracy, particularly with an eye on unfettering growth in the commercial sector. There's some potential proof this will work coming from across the pond. A similar effort in the United Kingdom has reduced cost to businesses by more than 10 million pounds since 2005. And they only put a one-to-one swap in place versus the U.S.'s more ambitious two-for-one exchange.
2: So not everyone is a fan of this move toward drastic reform, of course. Several agency groups filed a lawsuit in D.C. District Court against the order, claiming it is unconstitutional, undermining both congressionally passed laws and the Administrative uh, Procedures Act, which enables agencies to propose and uh, institute rules and regulations. Uh, The groups are also concerned, uh, the order directs federal agencies to illegally repeal regulations important to ensuring the health and safety of US citizens. Uh, The administration has 60 days to respond to the February 8th filing.
3: Meanwhile, however, those regulatory reform efforts will continue. An executive order issued February 24th requires federal agencies to select an official regulatory reform officer and create a task force to examine the organization's regulations and see what can be eliminated. Agencies that don't really issue a lot of rules can apply for exemption from this whole process, but everyone else will be responsible for assessing regulations that, among other considerations, either eliminate jobs or have a dampening effect on their creation, um, or are outdated, unnecessary, or ineffective, have an unfavorable cost or benefit ratio, run counter to regulatory reform initiatives and policies, or flow down from previously issued executive orders or other presidential directives that have since been rescinded or substantially modified. Last in this section, is a new law that gives the Government Accountability Office additional power to obtain the records it needs to do its job. The GAO Access and Oversight Act authorizes GAO to obtain federal agency records to complete its audit and investigative duties, including providing the agency with the authority to sue for those records if they have not been produced voluntarily. The measure also ensures GAO's access to the national directory of new hires, which contains wage and employment information which should help support the agency's evaluation of programs that are means-tested, as well as rooting out improper payments and fraud. A similar measure has been, uh, had been approved by the House last fall, so this may well sound familiar, but it did not make it through the entire approval process before the end of the 114th Congress, so it was dusted off in this new session and hastened through this time around.
2: And so even though all this activity, understandably, has agencies quite busy working on other areas, uh, we did see a few policy updates released last month. And it was mostly confined to releases of updates to existing acquisition guidance. But there's something a bit juicier, if you will, going on over at DOD. Um, So we're going to start off with a review of that. The Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis released memoranda directing internal examination of the department's business operations readiness and modernization, specifically tasking the Deputy Secretary of Defense with looking at organizational and structural reforms and setting cross-function teams on identifying areas to improve mission effectiveness and efficiency. Part of this effort will include figuring out the mechanics of how DOD is going to implement the required division of the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition, Technology, and Logistics into two different pieces. It would be one that addresses research and engineering, and the other would be a portion that handles acquisition and support. The reports were due at the end of February for how the teams uh, proposed the department tackle such issues as uh, options to either improve the chief management officer function or swap this position out in favor of a new undersecretary of defense for management. Uh, developing an initial organizational plan to better support IT and cybersecurity operations. Looking at efficiency opportunities across DOD's eight core business functions including acquisition and contract management and also identifying business services that no longer need to be pursued separately uh, within each individual military department. So we notice a lot of emphasis here on identifying what similar functions can be consolidated. And the sentiment is definitely one of, you know, let the branches handle the things they specialize in that are unique to them, and let someone else handle the generic business operations functionality. Um, this is the Department of Defense after all, so we do want to let them concentrate on defending.
4: We haven't yet seen any official word on what the results were of these evaluations, but we can expect them to form the foundation of some pretty pronounced upcoming reorganization efforts. and That's definitely a stay tuned for more topic we'll be following on your behalf. So right, on to the bread and butter stuff, though we'll stay for, with the DOD for the moment right now. The Department has updated its instruction pertaining to DoD Emergency Management Program activities. The new instruction nullifies the previous one and addresses establishing and maintaining a comprehensive All Hazards EM Program, aligning program efforts with Presidential Policy Directive 8, that's the directive that talks about basically being prepared for any kind of national or emergency, man-made or otherwise, and implementing the National Planning Framework and the National Preparedness System when needed to manage emergencies. DOD also updated its instruction on business systems requirements and acquisition. So now, if the system is so big that it qualifies as a major defense acquisition program or MDAP, this new instruction does not apply. But for non-MDAPs, the instruction provides policy for using the business capability acquisition lifecycle for requirements and acquisition of all DOD business capabilities and supporting business systems for all the department's components.
3: The Office of Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy also wants to hear what you think about two draft sections for its guidebook for acquiring commercial items. Part A addresses definitions of commercial items and helping users make timely determinations, while Part B discusses determining fair and reasonable prices. Comments on the draft should be submitted by March 24th. Now two brief updates from the civilian realm. The Department of Energy has two new acquisition guide chapters out. On February 1st, the department released a new chapter on synopsizing proposed non-competitive contract actions under FAR 6.302-1. This largely addresses how DOE's STRIPES system works with FedBizOps. And on February 15th, DOE released a new chapter 17.6, the origin, characteristics, and significance of the DOE's management and operating contracts. A few administrative and formatting changes were made, but. Mainly, that's now been redesignated as Chapter 17.602.
1: And we will move on to the variety portion of the presentation, our new and notable grab bag of random quick hits on what's recently released, or cool and interesting, and the acquisition world. The Government Accountability Office has come out with its biennial report on the government programs and operations that are at high risk of waste, fraud, abuse, or mismanagement or that need transformative change. GEO actually had some fairly good news in this issue, noting that for 23 of the 32 high-risk areas identified in the 2015 report, the government has at least partially met all five criteria necessary for removal from the list. So hey, that is pretty good. One significant area that was good enough to take completely off the list was sharing and managing terrorism-related information and that's always a good thing to know that that's being managed adequately. GEO also took uh, off two parts of areas, it's just the portions of the larger categories, mind you, related to DOD supply chain management and gaps in geostationary weather satellite data. Additions to the list include federal Indian education health and energy programs, federal environmental liabilities, and the massive preparation efforts that are underway for the 2020 Census. GAO expanded the high-risk presence for DOD's polar-orbiting weather satellites and Interior's restructuring of offshore oil and gas oversight. Okay, you might be thinking, what about our wheelhouse? Well, we have that as well.
2: Well, for contracts and acquisition-related areas of concern, GAO cited the need for more concentration on improving IT acquisitions and operations. Maybe not so much of a surprise to anyone. Uh, in particular, GAO advised more work is needed on implementing FATARA and strengthening IT workforce planning practices. Uh, DOD weapon systems acquisitions. Uh, these programs are always big dollar and complex, so it's almost inevitable to find these hanging out on that list. And GAO advised DOD to keep building on existing reform efforts and to lavish attention on its big, tricky, sticky programs, like the Joint Strike Fighter, uh, Littoral Combat Ships, uh, the Ford-class aircraft carriers, and Missile Defense Agency programs. A DOD contract management, in general, needs some attention, too. Uh, DOD needs to, first, increase capacity to negotiate, manage, and oversee contracts. Also, determine the appropriate mix of military, civilian, and contractor personnel, also to strategically manage how it acquires services, and finally, to sustain efforts to integrate operational contract support. Now, along those big dollar, big complexity lines, uh, the Department of Energy's contract management for the National Nuclear Security Administration and the Office of Environmental Management. Uh, There's also NASA's Acquisition Management. The agency needs to work more on its cost estimating, risk management, and overall implementation of management tools.
3: And some other fairly nice news. Customer satisfaction with federally provided services is up to its highest level since 2012. The American Citizen Satisfaction Index, administered by the University of Michigan, found citizens gave federal services a satisfaction rating of 68 out of 100 in 2016 which is up five points from 2015. Customers reported that federal websites had improved in ease and usefulness and also praised the courtesy and professionalism of federal employees, uh, clarity of publicized federal information, and timeliness and efficiency of processes. So nice job, you guys.
4: If the hiring freeze is putting a squeeze on your agency's planned data-related projects, the National Technical Information Service may have an allowable workaround to offer. NTSIS already has in place a wide array of joint venture partners, large contractors, small firms, nonprofits, research groups whose private sector data-related expertise would be happy to tap for you. This sounds like an intriguing possibility. NTIS will meet with your organization to discuss your priorities and issues, frame a problem statement to ensure it understands what your agency wants to achieve, and then it'll consult its JVPs to further refine the statement. Once all parties are in the same page about the objective, you'd give a go-ahead for NTIS to open up a bid opportunity for its JVPs, giving them about 10 days to respond. In total, to get some really top-notch data expertise in place to help your agency, you can count on a span of 60 to 90 days. It's still an agile way to obtain the services and still uses bids built-in as a built-in cost efficiency, but it also offers a longer-term, more sustainable way for agencies to work with the private sector when compared to the more ad hoc approach of prime competitions, challenges, or hackathons, according to NTIS Director Avi Bender.
3: However ad hoc they may be, hackathons have been proving a successful cyber protection strategy for federal agencies, notably various defense organizations, uh, though IRS also put its toe into that pool recently, and now GSA is contemplating taking a turn. The agency's technology transformation service issued a draft solicitation in January asking industry for ideas for setting up a hacking program for so-called White Hat uh, Good Guy Hackers to seek out vulnerabilities in its cloud-based applications. TTS's bug bounty program would not only try to ferret out weak spots, but also generate high quality security intelligence in the process. Comments on the solicitation were due January 30th. GSA has brokered a new government-wide enterprise software agreement with Hewlett Packard Enterprise that could save $50 million over five years. The deal modifies the IT Schedule 70 contract of software reseller CareSoft with four types of HPE products to help agencies comply with digital government policy requirements and best practices in such areas as data center consolidation, software and portfolio management, and agile software development. The agreement will help agencies save as much as 39% from commercial HPE software prices.
2: So, Software management may not sound like the most exciting topic in the federal procurement realm, but not only is it a critical part of information security practices, it can also offer pretty significant cost savings opportunities. In fact, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration has now managed to save $103 million since 2011 through the efforts of its Enterprise License Management Team to keep tabs on the agency's software assets and centrally manage those purchases. The approach helps NASA not only look for ways to improve purchasing efficiencies, but also identify whether they have existing assets on hand that can be redeployed as needed. Um, this is according to their software manager, Daryl Smith. Uh, The team does a lot of negotiating with vendors and won't just go for the cheapest options if it means getting locked into a long contract, Uh, but definitely is able to reap the benefits of doing centralized high volume spend compared to what the agency's different centers would have spent if they had to purchase their software independently. Uh, To build on the success of the program, uh, NASA next hopes to stand up a more advanced asset management program that will provide greater visibility over the software ecosystem and helps identify how uh, many licenses are actually being used.
1: GSA is rolling out two more green icons on GSA Advantage to make it easy to identify more environmentally friendly options. There's now a Safer Choice icon that denotes cleaning products that meet the Environmental Protection Agency's Safer Choice standard That means the product is safe for both human health and for the environment. And there's also an EPA-recommended icon. That one pertains to cafeteria, construction, custodial, electronics, grounds landscaping, and office furniture products that meet or are certified for EPA-recommended specifications, standards, and eco-labels. The agency wants to know what's currently on the market, what might feasibly be implemented to help the government keep track of its $3 trillion in annual cash outflow, and any creative ideas industry might have about meeting those obligations. Responses are due by March 13th. The fruits of another long-term initiative, this one by DOD and four years in the making, were finally unveiled in February as the Department's new electronic health record system went live at Fairchild Air Force Base in Washington State. This was a very complex effort and it was characterized by many of the same IT headaches other federal agencies grapple with when they try to modernize trying to wrangle multiple totally different legacy IT systems into playing well enough together to maintain functionality while new systems are launched and then everything is brought up to speed contractor Litos is in charge of the system rollout as well as its upkeep under a 4.3 billion dollar EHR consolidation and modernization contract which was awarded in July 2015. The new system is called MHS Genesis and uses the Cerner Commercial Health Records System. Smaller department facilities based in the Pacific Northwest seem like a good region to start rolling out the new system and full implementation is slated to be complete in 2022, at which point MHS Genesis will be supporting some 9.5 million patients at facilities worldwide, including ships at sea and battlefield medical stations.
3: DOD also launched its code.mil open source initiative, which is aimed at facilitating collaboration between public and private sector software developers as they write code for DOD projects. The Defense Digital Service is using the GitHub-based platform to solicit feedback on the best way to address a murky licensing issue for any new software developed through the collaboration. Specifically, code written by U.S. federal government employees uh, typically doesn't have copyright protections under U.S. and some international laws, but CDB wants to find a way to attach open source licenses to any resultant code. CDS has posted a draft open source strategy that addresses the issue for review and comment. It intends to finalize the agreement at the end of March and then use that mechanism for the projects created via the platform.
4: It seems to talk about crowdsourcing and crunching big data has become pretty much unavoidable and the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects activity has announced it is funding efforts to test and implement a new program that aims to improve intelligent analysts' reasoning abilities. The program is called CREATE, which stands for Crowdsourcing, Evidence, Augmentation, Thinking, and Evaluation. The idea is to use analysis techniques to help analysts and the people who are making decisions based on crowdsourcing or big data calls Understand what the evidence in front of them is demonstrating and what underlying assumptions are either supporting or conflicting with their conclusions. IARPA is expecting to develop tools from this effort that can provide objective support to anyone who needs to make complex decisions. There would be applications for not only intelligence analysts, but also science, law, and policy making. IARPA has already awarded CREATE research contracts to several projects with structured crowdsourcing platforms to begin testing and analysis. Now let's discuss what's been going on in acquisition legal developments. Interesting news for those of us who lived through the government shutdown that occurred in 2013. I remember that. The U.S. Court of Federal Claims ruled the government is obliged to compensate employees who filed a class action lawsuit to recover damages incurred for having to work during the shutdown. About 25,000 federal employees who either were employed protecting life or property or were paid from non-annually appropriated accounts and were not compensated until the shutdown ended participated in the suit. Those employed in Fair Labor Standards Act exempt positions such as teachers, nurses, and high-level managers could not participate though. The government had argued it could not meet its pay obligations during the shutdown due to the Anti-Deficiency Act's prohibition against spending money when specific appropriations are not in place. However, COFC has previously determined ADA cannot be used as an excuse for late Fair Labor Standard Act violations. So, workers are entitled to recoup the federal minimum wage of $7.25 per hour for each hour worked when paychecks were delayed between October 1st and 5th, plus any overtime. Both sides must calculate damages and file a joint statement by April 7th.
3: Our next legal drama is rather interesting in light of DOD's November proposed rule that would direct the defense industry to discuss their planned independent research and development projects with DOD before they dig in too much in terms of cost. Industry is not happy about this, claiming variously it's too hard to do or they're unclear how it'll be implemented or it's going to lead to bid protests, it's going to delay the rollout of technology. You get the idea. Lots of objections. Well, Orbital ATK is suing the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency because the agency wants to award a contract to build robots that can make repairs to government and commercial satellites in space. The firm says it already has similar efforts underway for commercial applications and DARPA's $15 million planned contract would be unfair competition. DARPA counters that its robots would be able to take on a broader range of tasks, so the two projects are not in direct competition. However, it does seem that this is exactly the kind of potential conflict that the planned and much-complained-about proposed rule would help to resolve. The Department of Homeland Security reopened bidding for its $1.5 billion flexible Agile support for the Homeland contract, or FLASH, for Agile services. The contract was something of a pilot test using a blanket purchase agreement for Agile work. Uh, it was modeled after a similar vehicle created by the 18S group, and DHS was anticipating some industry pushback. Well, at least eight of the pool of 114 bidders protested its November selection of 13 companies to participate on the BPA. DHS decided to take matters into its own hands rather than wait for GAO's deliberations and ruling, so they took corrective action and opened their doors to reconsider bids. On Tuesday, the agency announced that after the corrective action, two awardees were found to no longer be eligible for an award and no additional new awards were made. Now we wait and see if more protests will be forthcoming.
2: And Glock, the uh, gun company, uh, fires off a protest, pardon the pun, I couldn't help myself, um, at the Army's award of a $580 million pistol contract to Sig Sauer. The Army announced in January it had selected SIG for a 10-year contract to replace its soldiers' M9 Berettas, which are now over 30 years old. Um, The involved parties did not disclose the nature of Glock's complaint, but the company did file its protest with GAO following its debriefing with the service, and a decision is expected by June 5th. GAO has sustained a protest alleging the agency in question made its award on a lowest price technically acceptable basis, although the solicitation called for a best value trade-off competition. Unsuccessful offer, Patriot Solutions, claimed the federal prison industries, um, here now referred to as UNICOR, stated in its solicitation that past performance, technical factors, and price would each figure into the organization's determination of who offered the best value, with past performance and technical factors weighted more heavily than price. However, Patriot's debriefing document indicated that UNICOR awarded contracts based on LPTA without use of trade-offs. It took its complaint first to UNICOR, but when the contracting officer's reevaluation ended up in the same determination, Patriot Solutions escalated to GAO. Now, Unicor blamed a typo for making it look like the CO did not perform a best value trade-off. However, GAO pointed out that both award decision memos stated because past performance and technical ratings are acceptable among the evaluated offers, price became the determining factor. No trade-offs were used. Since Patriot Solutions actually received a higher uh, experience rating than one of the two eventual awardees, GAO concluded UNICOR took away Patriot Solutions' potential advantage in past performance by not performing a comparative evaluation and instead treating all offers as acceptable. A trade-off analysis, uh, if the organization had conducted one. Uh, could have led UNICOR to judge Patriot Solutions' um, better experience warranted payments of its higher proposed price. GAO therefore sustained the protest on the grounds that UNICOR prejudiced Patriot Solutions by not adhering to the solicitation, which brings us to the takeaway. Follow your solicitation. Uh, you are absolutely going to be held to any written disclosure of how you plan to run your solicitation. So. Be sure to remain consistent with the blueprint throughout the process.
4: GAO also sustained a protest regarding the Department of Veterans Affairs' cancellation of a solicitation and extension of an existing contract to cover the same work. VA issued a request for quotations in July of 2016 for laundry services for a base period of one year with four one-year option periods at three of its California facilities. VA intended to make award to the lowest price, technically acceptable offer. After one revision, the RFQ closed in mid-September. And then two weeks after this deadline, VAO extended its existing contract with the incumbent, Railroad Cleaners, to propose the same work as the solicitation. A few days later, bidders received notices that the VA had canceled the solicitation based on, quote, receiving legal guidance to do so. One of the bidders, Walker Development and Trading Group, called shenanigans. They claimed that not only did it seem that the incumbent was frequently favored in award decisions, their filing with GAO alleged that VA lacked a reasonable basis to cancel the solicitation. The stated rationale for canceling the solicitation was just a pretext to allow the agency to award the contract to railroad cleaners, and VA essentially made a sole source award that foreclosed competition. In early November, VA asked GAO to dismiss the protest on the basis that the Railroad Cleaners Award was a continuation of an existing contract, and as such, VA had no had discretion to handle those contract, contractual considerations.
3: Yeah, however, GAO asked VA numerous times, in fact, to address the cancellation issue, which it did not do to GAO's satisfaction. GAO then asked for more details and reasoning to explain actions underlying the Railroad Cleaners Contract extension. Um, again, VA did not address GAO's inquiries directly or completely. Uh, one contract specialist said the minimum dollar amount for the canceled solicitation was $2.5 million and that VA could not accept any quote below that and the protest, the protesters was below that amount. Um, however, a different contracting officer reported the solicitation was found to contain quote significant errors um, that required it to be canceled, corrected and reissued. So GAO observed that VA did not coherently address its rationale for canceling the solicitation, uh, produce documentation supporting the $2.5 million minimum, or provide information regarding its contract with railroad cleaners. It therefore sustained the protest on both the cancellation of the solicitation and the new contract action, since CA could not demonstrate a reasonable basis for the decisions to clarify why it took those actions. So takeaway lesson here is document. Um, Whatever decisions you make, make sure you have a reasonable case for why you made them and can produce documentation backing said reasonable decisions uh, up in case you're ever questioned about them. The last protest we'll examine has to do with what the protester claimed was an out-of-scope task order. The U.S. Air Force in 2012 awarded an IDIQ contract to R3 Strategic Support Group for explosive ordnance disposal support services and related training the last portion about trainings, key part here. In May 2016, the U.S. Air Force issued a four-month contract to Threat Management Group. We'll be calling them TMG here uh, for contingency training services. Before the TMG training contract expired, U.S. Air Force issued a task order, to r 3 under the 2012 IDIQ contract. TMG complains the Air Force had, in issuing the task order, violated the Competition and Contracting Act mandate to compete the requirement, protesting first to the department and then escalating to GAO.
2: And GAO's normal procedure here is to compare the performance work statement to the tasks assigned to see if anything was indeed straying out of scope. Uh, but in this case, there wasn't a performance work statement. GAO then asked for monthly progress reports from R3. Both of these, in fact, seemed to indicate the firm was providing training that fell outside the scope of its IDIQ contract. So, GAO requested further detail on how the Air Force calculated required personnel and pricing and communicated to R3 about required tasks. But the Air Force either did not have or at least did not supply any to GAO. And since only limited documentation was available to review and what small bit there was did seem to suggest some potentially out of scope work was going on, GAO uh, did sustain the protest. Now once more we see the importance of retaining documentation to support your decisions. The Air Force may have been straying a bit out of scope of the original IDIQ award or it may have been entirely within scope Uh, but since we didn't really have evidence to um, supply in its favor, GAO had to find against it. Now, let's move on to our review of the top changes to acquisition regulations, which is actually going to be pretty short because, as you most likely recall from last month's update, the administration has put a temporary hold on any in-process regulatory actions, um, and this is in order to allow the new folks to have a A look at what was both coming through and and poised to take effect
3: and naturally as we mentioned in the very first section today everyone is supposed to be taking a look at the rules they already have in place and swapping two out for every new rule that is released so things have been pretty quiet while everyone regroups and figures out their strategy but here's what we do want to mention to you Uh, an interim final rule from the department of veterans affairs published February 21st, amends a 2010 rule to extend to three years the interval between required verifications of the ownership and control of veteran-owned and service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses to enable them to participate in VA's set-aside contracts. The time span originally started off at one year, and it was extended to two years in 2012 and is now set by this change at three years. Comments may be submitted through April 24th. The Department of Agriculture has extended the deadline for comments on its proposed rule to add 12 sections that designate 12 product categories in its guidelines for designating bio-based products for federal procurement. The proposed rule would also establish minimum bio-based contents for each category. Comments on comments on that are now due by April 13th.
2: And coming down the home stretch, uh, Legal Services Corporation has issued a. Final rule that will take effect on April 1st and pertains to its regulations governing subgrants. Uh, the rule addresses areas including what factors to consider in determining whether an award from a recipient to another organization is a subgrant, establishing a dollar threshold above which the corporation's approval is needed to award a subgrant, and also establishing new processes for seeking prior approval of subgrant. Now, once regulatory action picks up again, I suppose we'll have uh, quite a few uh, clawbacks to address in addition to new ones coming out, you may want to avail yourself um, of our regulatory recap. Now, right after the close of uh, each calendar month, we create a comprehensive list of all the regulatory activity that has happened showing what uh, went into effect and what's still open for comments, and you can find this under the Publications tab on the VAO website. And I think that's it for our look back at February.
0: Thanks, Lauren. Okay, so that's all for this month. If you're a government agency subscriber to the Virtual Acquisition Office, you can read more about any of the covered headlines on the same VAO page where you downloaded this podcast. To our iTunes subscribers, thanks as always for tuning in. If you have any questions on how to gain access to the VAO, please email customercare at asigovt.com. Join us again next time for our VAO team recap of key acquisition developments. Thanks again for joining us today. Goodbye.